This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast in Ukrainian studies. I'm your host, John Shetichka. Joining me today is Dr. Andriy Portna, who is Professor of Entangled History of Ukraine at the European University Viadrina in Frankfurt. He graduated from universities in Dnipro and Warsaw, and he defended his PhD dissertation in Lviv. He has conducted research and lectured in places such as Amsterdam, Basel, Berlin, Brussels, Cambridge, Geneva, Lyon, Paris, Potsdam, and Vienna. His publications are devoted to intellectual history, historiography, genocide, and memory studies in Poland, Russia, and Ukraine. Today, we will discuss Andrzej's recent book entitled Dnipro, An Entangled History of a European City. The book was published in 2022 by Academic Studies Press. Andrei, thank you so much for joining me on the New Book Network's podcast today. Hello, my pleasure. So this book is just really amazing, Andrei, on so many levels, I think, because it combines so many aspects of history. It's intellectual. It's about a city, non-human actors. It's about multiculturalism. It's about nationalism. It's about empire. It's about all these wonderful things. Um, and one thing I, that sort of immediately stood out to me was that your book acts as a biography of a city, which I'm sure you, you know, get told a lot. Um, and I think more than just a biography, it can also be read as a local history, but a local history that's situated in international history and European history, um, and even a micro history of a city. But, you know, I hate to call it a micro history because it also works within the ebbs and flows of, of different histories that are going on over the course of several hundred years. But what I think is really remarkable is your ability to talk about the city within larger historical processes is what we do as historians. So I want to start just by asking you to talk more about why you chose to write about Dnipro and why you think its history is important for helping us understand Ukraine and, and European history more broadly. Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. So I should probably start with the point that uh, the idea on a decision, a decision to write um, a biography, that's a good term, a biography of uh, Dnipro. 
came to my mind many years ago. So when I say many, it means more than 10 years ago. And <laughs> so frankly speaking, the original plan was to quickly write and publish a book uh, for, let's say, Ukrainian and international audience. And when I kind of like planned and even announced it for the first time in Kiev, you know, as I said, like 10 years ago, uh, which means uh, the city's official name was uh, Dnipropetrovsk over then. So this is the Soviet version of it, right? And uh, the political situation in Ukraine was um, very different from what we have now, right? And it was even, it was even, before the outbreak of war, as we all know now, of course, like the real outbreak was in 2014, even though it was not a full-scale war, as we have it now. So, and then, you know, like uh, for many, many, for different reasons, maybe no time to go into details right now, but uh, this uh, process of writing took me much longer time and on the one hand i'm happy about it because you know like as we all know if you write longer you have like yeah you could find new sources you could like rethink rewrite some uh, parts you know again and again on the other hand i'm asking myself pretty seriously like uh, why still i ended up uh, in uh, 2000 and actually 21 so the manuscript was almost finished in 21 yeah, and then published next year. Uh, because, again, you know, it was published and it was like um, like the final version of it yeah, was prepared before the full-scale aggression. So, again, we have a kind of academic text uh, that was finished before those events that, like, you know, like, that are so important, like, of course, and relevant for all of us. And I also ask, asking myself, like, okay, maybe it was uh, too late, or too early, you know, like depending on the, you know, yeah, on the, <laughs> on our imagination of uh, time and the relevance of history. Uh, but um, I should mention that that's the story of a place where I was born and raised. Uh, and actually, it's, it's maybe funny, I don't know, but uh, when I was like a student, for instance, of history in Dnipro, um, for some reasons, it was not the local history that interested me the most. I was fascinated, you know, with the Polish history, <laughs> with methodology, you know, with, with, you know, reading different, let's say, theoretical works by German, American, uh, Polish historians, yeah? But later on, so when I went to Poland to do my second master degree, and then when I defended my dissertation in Lviv, and when I worked for shorter time periods, like in different places in Europe, uh, you've mentioned, I've come to the conclusion that actually what I could do as a historian um, is the biography of uh, my native city, if you, if, yeah, if I may say so, like native, yeah, the place where I was born. And in doing that, I decided, and actually here I'm very grateful that you put it this way, because it was very important for me as well. I've decided to try my best not to produce a kind of, you know, like local history per se, as we have them, like a lot, let's say, in Ukrainian, for instance, like uh, really local stuff that is almost, you know, like, uh, yeah, uh, let's say, uh, not really understandable, let's put it this way, yeah, for people, even specialists, 
who not from that particular place, right? So my ambition was actually completely different. My ambition was to put this local history into broader context. So context of European history, sometimes world history, one could say, of course, like the First World War, the Second World War, but also into different, let's say, uh, theoretical frameworks, if you wish. Yeah. So in, sometimes it's like the history of migration, sometimes the history of nationalism, uh, sometimes... Um, the history of uh, yeah social movements and even one could say uh, the history of the working class because uh, the case of um, the Dnipro it's very much the history of industrialization and uh, let's say all the problems and challenges linked to revolutionary movements and uh, various types of social deviations and so so on um, and then you know. At the like at the final stage of my work, I've realized that actually, if you're talking about English language uh, historiography, English language books, we have no history of the Dnipro at all. So we have some books about particular uh, periods of uh, the history, like for example, the book by uh, Sergei Zhuk, so my good friend and colleague, right. Uh, but his book is about one a very specific particular issue. So cultural politics, cultural consumption in the Brezhnev era. That's it. But if you look for a book about the entire history, so let's say from the late 18th um, century to nowadays, I'm afraid my book will be like the first one to read. And here, of course, I, hmm, I like, I'm aware of the responsibility uh, to being the author of the kind of like first synthesis of, of some particular place. Because, of course, as any synthetic book, uh, this book is just, you know, huh, how to put it, it's just like my view on how the history of the place uh, could be written, could be imagined, yeah, could be presented. There are a lot of aspects that are not mentioned at all. A lot of people who are absent because it was not enough space to put them all into it. And that is why I'm really curious, you know, and I I hope that uh, some colleagues, uh, you know, they will, let's say, continue, they'll be encouraged (laughs) by my publication, they'll be encouraged to go deeper into various uh, periods and aspects of this uh, city's history. And in my view, it's not for the sake of this place, even though it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. And of course, I really hope that uh, relatively soon all of us will be able to go there again, to work in the archives, yeah, to visit the biggest Jewish community center in the world, and so, so on. Uh, but um, for me, it was an exercise in history writing, you know, just a kind of an intellectual adventure. Yeah, so it it was not kind of you know nostalgic book, <laughs> book about something like that. It was an exercise in writing a history of different periods and different uh, topics, and I'm actually very happy because you know for me it was also something like new. I would say uh, when I've started preparing this chapter about the 18th century, uh, this stuff is you know was not 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 anymore this stuff was completely new for me because i'm not a historian of the 18th century so i've learned myself a lot (laughs) and i've tried to show this fascination um and uh yeah like uh, uh, these challenging possibilities of thinking about it with the readers and then of course they will decide whether this task was accomplished or not (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it's you've done a remarkable job, I think, with you know, it, as one of the first English language monographs on the city, I, I, it introduces us to a lot of things, and you cover a lot of ground, really. I mean, roughly from you know the founding of it, and you basically go from you know like 18th century up until present day, and it, you know, I think you for covering that much history do a pretty good job of touching on a lot of important projects and. Um, I think it's sort of interesting to hear you talk about, too, returning to your sort of home city and thinking about what it's like to revisit it. You know, a lot of us sort of move away from our home cities and don't want to think about it anymore. But you've done something unique and um, an intellectual exercise in returning home and navigating that. And um, I have a couple of questions based on what you just said. The first is, you know, it is I think it is remarkable that this is your home city and, you know, you're sort of. place of birth. And I, I, I couldn't help but notice that you do sort of leave yourself out of the narrative in the book. And I, I'm sure that was intentional. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about uh, the thought process and whether you were going to sort of include yourself in the book, because you're part of the history that you're writing. But as an academic, you weigh these things of trying to produce an academic text. But I can see yourself in it a little, a little bit, um, particularly in the sources that you use. I, I love the images that you use because a lot of them will say from your personal collection, which just shows me, you know, you've collected parts of the history, you've collected parts of the city, and you have an archive, you know, of the city yourself. And so, um, could you talk a little bit about why you decided not to write yourself into this history? Yeah, that's one of the key questions for myself as well. I could tell you, I'm not sure whether it's the first time I'm saying that, but Probably, probably. Okay, let let's believe that the first time. So I could admit uh, that the original plan, so the very first original plan, ten years ago, it was actually about including myself very much into the narrative, almost you know, almost doing something like that, uh, telling some story from my childhood. And then explaining this story through the events that happened, you know, uh, like, yeah, many years before, or how, for instance, some uh, street names or places, yeah, how they are linked to, and then like name it, to Russian imperial history, or to the Jewish past of the city, or to the Soviet experiments, and so, so on. And actually, who knows, maybe, maybe I will still write such a book at some point. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, what happened, actually? Hmm. You know, um, I've got a fellowship. Um, I was was very lucky. I was very lucky to get a fellowship uh, from the Institute for Advanced Study Berlin. That's actually how I came to Germany. So it sounds uh, strange, maybe even crazy, but this book, so this book project about my hometown brought me to Germany. Yeah, nothing else. This book. <laughs> so the plan was like that. I go to Berlin for one year, finish the manuscript, go back and, you know, continue my activities in Kiev. But exactly in this time period, uh, something very, very important in Ukraine happened. I mean, the Revolution of Dignity, uh, the Maidan movement, and then the occupation of Crimea and the outbreak of war. And, you know, I remember actually this time, so I uh, actually, at that time period, so I I was in Berlin, also giving some lectures at the universities in Berlin, and I've realized it was not like my personal decision together with the German colleagues. We've decided that there is a need to establish something 
Now let's see more or less regular about Ukrainian studies and Ukrainian uh, topics in Germany. Because, as we all know now, uh, like this uh, particular field was rather missing in this uh, pretty broad so-called East European studies here. And actually, uh, because of this decision like to initiate such a project, it was first called Berlin-Brandenburg-Ukraine Initiative, then turned into Prisma Ukraine Research Network Eastern Europe, and then into my professorship uh, at the Viadrina. So, first of all, it costed a lot of time in a sense that, uh, unfortunately, for the book, yeah, I have had to focus on this work. And on the other hand, by doing this stuff, I mean, on the one hand, uh, teaching, on the other hand, preparing different projects, yeah, thinking about uh, joint German-Ukrainian projects, at some point, I've realized that maybe actually it wasn't now, I'm thinking now, like spontaneously, maybe it was the influence of the German academic milieu. I don't know, I should think about it more. But at some point, um, I've realized that if... I have to publish my book like right now, yeah. So I failed to do it quicker. So now I should do it maybe not in a German way. I would not say like that, but in a uh, let's use this definition in a purely academic uh, yeah style. And uh, I've started rewriting already, you know, existing chapters, believe me or not, so I have some previous <laughs> versions in my computer. And actually, this new version was, as you rightly said, uh, it was much less personal and much more, let's say, yeah, I wouldn't say neutral, but uh, I would let me put it this way. It was much more open in a sense of possible interpretations uh, for the readers. So I've really tried to give an, you know, a cautious reader a chance to decide um, her or himself, uh, sometimes even, how to interpret uh, particular uh, quotes or materials or informations. Um, and it, it was not done because I believed or I believe in, you know, something like this, like, you know, old-fashioned objectivity of history writing. I'm afraid we have no reason <laughs> to believe it anymore. But I still think that there are different, uh, let's say, types of engagement, right? And my engagement in case of this particular book was to, again, being aware of the fact that it's the first English language synthesis of the city's biography, was to try my best to present this, you know, like spectrum, yeah, uh, the amount of information and sources and traditions and whatever, and conflicts also, because the city's, like, the city's history was and still is full of conflicts and problems and so, so on. And not to focus too much on my own, let's say, personal experience, even if you wish as a child, let's say, in late Soviet Union. It's also like a fascinating topic in itself. But as I said, maybe for, for another book, not for this one. So the only thing where I still uh, decided, uh, like, let's say, to use uh, this original plan was to include uh, some, uh, yeah, some information, some stuff that my father and my grandfather and my also grandmother collected just, you know, living in the city. And they are also looking into some photos from the family archive, but to use them as, you know, illustrations of the narrative and not as the main source or, let's say, the main um, yeah, subject in itself. 
again, whether it was a good decision, I don't know. It could be discussed. It could be discussed and uh, questioned and whatsoever. But you see, again, I've tried... Um, I've tried to avoid uh, this, you know, impression because, believe me, some people they even ask me about uh, this kind of, you know, uh, implied motivation. Let's say to convince people how great my uh, hometown is or how fascinating. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, I would say it's great, of course, but uh, the point was different. The point was to show uh, intellectual possibilities of. Uh, like broad, uh, comparative, if you wish, yeah, transnational for sure. Thinking about uh, this particular, um, yeah, uh, this particular part of Ukraine uh, in its history, and uh, to do that, I decided to limit, uh, let's say, to limit at least explicitly, yeah, uh, my own presence in the book. But believe me, there are a lot of places where I could still, uh, you know, like write an additional, <laughs> an additional personal comment or observation. Uh, but as I said, who knows? Maybe at some point I'll use this uh, stuff for another publication. Yeah, I, I mean, I was sort of craving that in the book of I was like, I want to know Andre's interpretation. Was he at some of these events, you know, later on in the book and. I, I think we're all really waiting for you to write, you know, a biography of Andres Dnipro, you know, that's going to be a great companion book in the future. And I think we'll all look forward to reading it. And I also think it's quite fascinating to hear you talk about this because the book, you know, and your professorship is about the entanglements of, of European history and the entanglements of Ukraine as part of Europe in this in this process. And it's it's sort of fascinating to hear me to hear you talk about going to Germany and thinking about yourself as a Ukrainian entangled in a, in, you know, a different European space, and then to use that sort of reflection to think back about your hometown. And I, I see a lot of that in the book, actually. And it's something that I think for listeners, they'd be sort of interested to hear a little bit more about, which I think it's interesting when you write about, um, well, I guess at the time, you know, it would have been Katerinoslav, but it, um, you know, people were comparing it to other European cities. And I find this sort of geographic thinking and imagination sort of interesting. It was, you know, things like New Athens or one of the Manchesters. And you talk about this at length in one of your chapters about how, you know, there, there have been many Manchesters uh, across Europe and, you know, in the Soviet Union as well. And they, they sort of become these industrial hubs and centers. But for whatever reason, Dnipro is not always thought of as one of those Manchesters. And it got me thinking about this. I think you you bring up a crucial point about sort of industrialization and the onset of modernity and whatever that means in that context. But, um, you know, you, you also refer to this process. It brings in a lot of different people together in the cities and you call it multicultural imperialism. Um, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the ways that that sort of industrial and modern process helped to entangle what was then Katerinoslav with the rest of Europe, because they're sort of comparing this place in Ukraine or in the Russian Empire, but then later on in, in Soviet Ukraine and then, you know, independent Ukraine, they've always been comparing it to other places in Europe. And in that way, they sort of think of it as how do we fit this place into Europe? So I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about that for our listeners who'd be sort of interested to hear about, you know, that industrialization process there and, and what that meant to sort of locate it on the map in Europe. Yeah, sure. So, um, that was, and one could say still is, I mean, Dnipro 
one of the European Manchesters, yeah, uh, as uh, some journalists of the late 19th century nicely, uh, in my view, put it, the southern Manchester, because we have a lot of northern Manchesters, right, also in Finland, in Germany itself, actually, I, believe me, I especially went to those German Manchesters uh, to have a look, and I should tell you, you know, the, the, you could feel, really, it sounds a bit crazy, but you could feel this common, let's say, experience of rapid industrialization. Uh, and then later on, quite often also followed by, you know, all types of social problems and uh, environmental problems and economic problems and so, so on. And this metaphor of Manchester was very popular, indeed, very popular indeed. Um, and, um, okay, let's, uh, let's be frank, let's stress it again, this industrialization of the late Russian Empire, yeah, so end of the uh, 19th century, it was largely, actually predominantly, if you're talking about this particular region, so southern Ukraine, financed, uh, and uh, organized, if you wish, by the enterprises, private enterprises from the Western Europe. Again, if you look at the names even of the people who invested yeah, millions of dollars, as we say nowadays, yeah, into uh, Katerinoslav, uh, they were mostly French and Belgian uh, businessmen. In case of uh, Donbas, actually Donbas, uh, so Donetsk, it was part of this huge Yekaterinoslav government, right? Uh, we are talking about uh, British businessmen. So again, it's very, it's, it's, it's fascinating that the late Russian Empire allowed or even supported, if you wish, this uh, incredible participation of the foreign capital for investments in developing industry there without uh, without money and then also engineers also people who came like lead physically came there to uh, install all this stuff um, from France Belgium uh, Britain partly Germany we could not imagine this rapid development of this place absolutely not so it was indeed entangled it was just part of the European economic uh, development uh, this rapid capitalist development, right, of the late uh, 19th century. And then it was followed by the Soviet, uh, let's say, uh, Soviet uh, particular, yeah, very interesting, very violent, very violent uh, story of industrialization. And then after the Second World War, even like more fascinated, if, if you wish, story of the Soviet uh, violent rocket, uh, or, yeah, so nuclear war, Cold War, slash Cold War, industrialization, which occurred exactly in Dnipro, yeah, uh, already in the uh, late 40s and then 50s, 60s, 70s. So in this sense, uh, the city was indeed uh, linked, directly linked uh, to, yeah, to Western Europe, to Central Europe, for instance, during the First World War, some uh, plants, so the entire, I would say, the entire production was moved from Warsaw and Riga to Dnipro. So, like, western parts of the Russian Empire, yeah, because the front line was not so far away. And uh, even nowadays, if you go 
And actually, I did it also myself, of course. So in the Polish capital, so in Warsaw, where I was a student, as you've mentioned, uh, you could still go to a street, which is called uh, Stalowa, so the steel, steel street. And that's uh, the name uh, given after the plan that existed there, but then was removed to Dnipro during the First World War. And so you have the name, no no object anymore, but <laughs> it's like the you know like the presence of history, if you know if you know the story, of course. right. And in this sense, again, like one could say that you have this interesting intellectual let's say, tension between the idea of entanglement and the idea of belonging, actually, to the uh, all European economic system. And another very important idea, especially like post-Second World War, idea of the city closed for the foreigners. Yeah, and closed again because of this rocket industry. And uh, one could even say, if you wish, it is not in my book, but it's, it's about like speculating afterwards, <laughs> that if you're looking for like the explanatory trends in the city's history, one could say that on the one hand, you have this like trend of integration into, you know, like broader world economic structures. On the other hand, you have this idea of isolation, yeah, secretness, um, and, and yeah, stuff like that. And actually, even if you look, uh, let's say, in uh, uh, pretty recent, so like independent Ukraine years, you'll see this kind of competition, if you wish, in the city mythology. On the one hand, uh, the presence of this interesting idea that uh, the Brezhnev years, so the years of city closedness, were actually the golden age of the city because of, you know, higher social standards, demographic growth, stuff like that. On the other hand, on the contrary, you have this idea that exactly this closedness was the biggest obstacle for city development. And, you know, uh, until this full-scale war, one of the biggest issues in Dnipro was the issue of the international airport. Because, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, so the airport was not, uh, yeah, not good enough. It, it was actually designed as an airport of the Soviet closed city, right? So it's not supposed to be a place, you know, where planes from all around the world will come. In the very first day of the full-scale aggression, this airport was bombed, so it's not existing anymore. Most probably after the war, there will be a new, bigger, like really like <laughs> global opened one. We'll see. But one could say that there is kind of a tension like that. And the next point, this entire story of industrialization is, of course, as always, but also in this case, is the story of migration. Because if we are talking about this rapid development or building of like plants and factories, the same it would be true for Manchester itself, or for Polish Luch, or for German Chemnitz, and name it. I mean, you need a lot of workers immediately, like you know, like tomorrow or today. And the same happened in um, Katerinoslav and later on in Soviet uh, Dnipropetrovsk. So people from all around the empire, they were not, uh, there are some statistical data, you could find them in the book, but I could tell you very briefly that, uh, for instance, the majority of industrial workers in late imperial um, Katerinoslav, they were not local Ukrainian peasants. They were mostly, uh, let's say, young men uh, from the neighboring Russian uh, regions like Kursk, uh, Voronezh, uh, Aryong, and so so on. 
and as 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 we could imagine, as we know, a lot of them stayed. So they just stayed. They spent like the rest of their lives in uh, Katerinoslav. That is why you have this huge and fascinating debate, for instance, in uh, the early Soviet Ukraine about the fact that uh, the working class, the proletariat, is very much Russian in the Republic and the peasantry is Ukrainian and what should be done about it. So again, like you have this interesting combination of, let's say, national and social issues, yeah, put together in a in yeah in a new context and what's interesting here actually i would say that uh, the city somehow somehow because of its history was and remained a city of migrants seriously think about it so we have this like first of all you have like the first big influx influx of migrants is of course in the late 18th century because the city is created almost like out of nothing uh, there are some Cossack settlements around, but they are not big. They are not big. So it means like you need new people for the new city. Then industrialization again. Then the First World War. Uh, the city was one of the actually biggest centers of internal migration. So refugees, yeah, as we say nowadays, uh, temporarily displaced persons from the western parts of the empire. Then you have Soviet project, again, this rocket project. So again, many migrants, many people sent to work there. And even nowadays, you see, let's not forget that a lot of people who evacuated uh, yeah, uh, themselves from the war in Kharkiv Oblast, in Donetsk Oblast, in Kherson Oblast, they actually moved to Dnipro. So the biggest city, which is not far away from the front line. Also nowadays. So one could say that this uh, migration, this importance of uh, people who are coming to the place, it's one of the, yeah, it's like it's like the, the repeating topic or the repeating issue in, this, in, in the city's history. And that's actually interesting because uh, usually uh, the integration of those uh, migrants, people who migrated, yeah, it happened pretty quickly and peacefully. So in this sense, it's also kind of an interesting, again, like historical experience to reflect on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I, so many points to bring up here because the uh, just this last issue of migration, I, I see parallels to what's going on today with internally displaced Ukrainians that are that are going there now uh, that are, you know, on the front line and going to places close to there and also places like Kriviri to, to go to hospitals. And, you know, it's it's become this sort of hub for people that are moving. But I think your book sort of helps us understand that this process has been in motion for hundreds of years in many ways. And I think that the segment on industrialization really struck out or stuck out to me because, well, for a couple of things, first of all, it's just amazing all the different types of people that were coming into the city. I mean, the multiculturalism is fascinating. And you know, when I teach European history, I always have my students read this article from a few years ago that's about Belgian industrialization in Ukraine to get them to start thinking, you know, how these places maybe aren't so distant in our minds, right? Um, they're, they're, they're more linked than they would ever know. And, you know, they read about Hughes and Husovka and these, you know, these types of places that you were just talking about. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. And I think that somebody should write a dissertation or something on travel logs of people going to Dnipro because you use some of these and it's about these sort of um, interpretations of what a city is. And as you sort of point out, some of them have no idea what they're talking about at all. You know, they're just kind of rambling, but I think it's fascinating. 
um, about thinking about what a periphery is and what it's not. Um, and if you do anything in this book, it's that you show that, you know, this isn't a periphery, this is a major hub. And um, you also, you do, you sort of um, tell us about this entangled history from the beginning. And I also think that something that's understated in the book that I'd like to hear more about, not today, maybe, but a different time. And to, to hear you write another history is the environmental history behind it. I mean, there's so much in terms of you talk about taming nature and, um, you know, there's mentions of Nipro Hess and all these projects. And um, I think that the city plays a crucial role in that. But I guess my, my bigger question that I just kind of want to come back to is um, when all these people came together, this multiculturalism during industrialization and afterwards, uh, you have a really important segment in the book on Jewish history and the pogroms, especially in 1905 and, and thereafter. And, um, you know, I, I kind of just want to hear a little bit more about the, the sort of Jewish history of the city. And I would be curious, too, um, to kind of know how that history is incorporated today in interpretations in places like museums and stuff, um, what that history looks like um, as they sort of think back about these sort of you know, difficult relationships that were taking place because there was a lot of violence against the Jewish population at that time. And I'm curious how the city has sort of absorbed and remembered that now. Yeah, sure. I, I should tell you that uh, when I started, seriously like started writing uh, this book and looking for sources, I was amazed myself about the amount of evidence in many languages of the Jewish past of Katerina uh, Dnipro. It's really impressive. I, I, I would even dare to say that this uh, like complex, fascinating uh, cultural, political history yeah, of Jewish life in this place, it could and should be compared to the Jewish past in Odessa, in Vilnius. But if in the case of Odessa or Vilnius, we have so many books like detailed descriptions. In this case, <laughs> we have um, not so many. And that is why I decided it was my deliberate decision to pay like enough attention uh, to, let's say, for instance, people like uh, Menachem Mendel Usishkin, a prominent figure in the Zionist movement who actually became prominent exactly in Katerinoslav. So not somewhere else, but <laughs> right there. Or about this incredibly interesting, like fascinating person, this Jewish-Russian lawyer and a theoretician, yeah, Ilya Rashansky, who was one of the first in the Russian Empire to argue that the Jews should have all the same rights as other subjects of the Russian Empire. So the guy, again, lived in Katerinoslav, died there. His grave, unfortunately, was destroyed in early Soviet years. A typical story, because all the old cemeteries were destroyed. I also tried to describe this story in the book. And uh, you could go on and on. So I could give you like so, so many names, also writers, or sculptors, or painters, and so, so on. On the other hand, as you rightly mentioned, we have the story of the pogroms, and I've decided to look really like deeper into it, seriously, like to understand like what actually happened. Because in 1905, so the so-called first Russian revolution, right? The pogrom in Katerinoslav was apparently the biggest or one of the biggest and cruelest in the entire Russian Empire. So we are talking about a very serious outbreak of mass violence, yeah, urban violence. And then, of course, we also have pogroms in the revolutionary years, so 1919 mostly, 
that's the worst year for the Jewish population of Ukraine. Then, of course, we have the Holocaust. And again, this uh, the place uh, where the Jews of Dnipropetrovsk were shut down in uh, late autumn 1941. That's actually the place on the territory of the local university. So, like, uh, believe me, it's like the place where, like, so, like, every day for five years, being a student, I went, uh, we all have, like, we have to went through it, through, through this park. Yeah, so it's it's really, yeah, that's one of the parts of the story I was really, like, planning to write a longer personal account about, but <laughs> it's not in the book. Um, so, uh, why I'm saying that? Uh, this uh, history deserves um, a very like a very like serious research. Unfortunately, in the previous histories of the city, published in Ukrainian and Russian, because again, all the previous histories they are only in Ukrainian and Russian. Uh, usually, the Jewish uh, aspect is not really well presented. Okay. And that was also part of my motivation to pay bigger attention to it in my book. Because it's rather like, you know, it was never systematically done in this sense. Even though, even though, if you look at the newest developments, now let's say, again, like last uh, 10, 5 years, one should say that uh, there are very good publications about the Jewish past in Ukrainian language. Yeah. There is a center uh, the center called uh, the Tkuma Institute uh, for the Study of the Holocaust, where a lot of colleagues of mine work. And actually, they helped me. So it's also important that some pictures in the book, they were taken from the archive of this Jewish museum in Dnipro. So nowadays, it looks, uh, it looks you know, pretty impressive. And again, let me stress it again. In Dnipro, we have this huge uh, menorah Jewish community center. It's a unique uh, building or object, not just for Ukraine, uh, for Europe, for sure. I would dare to say for the entire world. And so you have a huge territory with a synagogue, but also conference halls, libraries, restaurants, hotels, name it, all of it. And actually, when uh, in the year 2019, we organized the summer school in Dnipro, of course, I immediately connected my friends uh, in this menorah center, and they gladly agreed. So we've had our uh, mostly German summer school in this menorah center. It was no problem at all. On the contrary, uh, what is important here again nowadays? Uh, nowadays, again talking about like independent Ukraine, right? Uh, the Jewish life or the Jewish community is really well integrated into the you know city's life and city's activity one could also and should probably uh, talk about the revival of jewish life uh, uh, that happened uh, largely due to the activity of the uh, rabbi who came from new york new york <laughs> to dnipro yeah rabbi uh, kamenetsky a prominent pupil of Rabbi Schneerson, so a very like famous and important figure in the uh, history of Hasidism, uh, who actually also had a family ties to the city, so to Dnipro, and all of it. So uh, again, I would dare to say that nowadays there are no like bigger problems in a sense like you know let's say lack of information or lack of monuments. There are also monuments, also um, important monument uh, in this place that I've mentioned, so where the Jews were killed by the Nazis in 1941. 
Steam. Ah, actually, there is a Schneerson Street in Dnipro. I'm very happy about it. <laughs> so there is a street renamed after Schneerson uh, very recently. It happened like five years ago. So it, it's, a, it's a new development. At the same time, it does not mean, of course, that like all the problems are solved. Not at all. I would say for I'll just give maybe like let, let me give one example. I would say it's very important to write like to rethink and write again a proper history of uh, Jewish Yiddish literature in uh, late 19th early 20th century Katerinoslav if possible entangled with the history of Ukrainian Russian and Polish literatures in the time and again believe me i've have i have found some materials about it after the book was published <laughs> so hopefully i'll do it at some point also myself but it's really amazing how the jewish cultural life flourished um in the 1920s and how it was all stopped uh in late 1920s so when stalin actually started this yeah uh, uh let's say this entire project of collectivization um five-year plan and cultural revolution in the soviet union and unfortunately the story of the 20s is less known is less known as it deserves to be known so there are some aspects to be done here but again let me stress it again at present moment the Jewish component of the Jewish past, yeah, is really integrated into the uh, image of the city. Actually, quite often uh, it is called the Jewish capital of Ukraine, which also find a very nice, <laughs> very nice name indeed. Um, and uh, it's also integrated into the um, city's uh, historical narratives. Even though, even though, again, I'm looking forward a new Ukrainian language synthetic book of the city history. Because the books we have, they were published earlier, and they were unfortunately influenced by this, you know, um, mostly Soviet uh, tendency, and not to stress the Jewish presence at all. Yeah, so in, in, so in, the, in Soviet narrative, as we know, uh, not just in the context of the Second World War, but especially in the context of the war, Jewish victims were just called uh, peaceful citizens. Peaceful citizens. And like, you know, and yeah. Um, so this has to be changed. And I think uh, what I've did in my book, so I've tried to show that at least if we know from statistical data that the Jewish population uh, constituted almost 40%, or more than 30% for sure of the city population in late 19th century, uh, it deserves uh, also the proper amount of historiographical attention in the book about it. And that's how I, <laughs> that's how I decided to, to divide uh, uh, those parts. And uh, I, hope, I hope it would be of some interest also for specialists in Jewish history. Yeah, I, absolutely it will. And I, I think it's uh, it's critically important. I thought it was a really, um, it gave us a good taste of things that we can do to study that history more fully, I think. And I think a lot of people will read this and pick up on that and, and you know, start to think about how they can write histories of all those things that you just mentioned. Um, so I have one more question for you uh, as we sort of conclude and wrap up our interview. Um, I was thinking back to sort of how you started this book 
talking about how people thought of Dnipro in 2013-2014 and this sort of stereotype as a, you know, in in your quoted words in the book, stereotypical Eastern Ukraine, but how it's not that simple. And these binaries of how we view Ukraine and these cities more generally is insufficient for understanding the complexity of all these places. And I sort of, you know, as I was moving through the book, um, I was sort of startled by some parallels of the way that the Russian Empire viewed southern Ukraine and specifically Katerinoslav as, you know, a place of chaos that needed to be um, made unchaotic. And and then thinking today about what Russia is doing to Ukraine, you know, waging this war on Ukraine, um, they have some, they're, they're different, but just, you know, similar features of the way that they view Ukraine. And through all of this, I your book, you know, also made me think about the way that Ukraine and Ukrainians are starting to view the entangled histories of these regions. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would say it's being untangled because you can't untangle a past, but you can work through the tanglements, right? And, and I, I think that um, your book does this well of sort of helping us engage in these difficult conversations and to understand the ways that these, you know, features have been constructed. And so I guess I just want to ask you now um, in our concluding thoughts, um, what role do you think the city of Dnipro plays in thinking about these historical processes as we move forward, um, hopefully to the the conclusion of this war and the victory for Ukraine sooner than later? Um, does the city offer us any lessons about how to think toward the future of Ukraine and thinking about Ukrainian cities? Hmm. Yeah, that's th- that's not an easy question. Um, on the one hand, let's put it this way, I was very happy, you know, I was very happy to figure out uh, when the book was already published that uh, another book about Kharkiv also just uh, came out. Why I'm saying that? I believe that we need more uh, biographies of at least bigger Ukrainian cities to be included into, yeah, it's international academic debate, academic life, because... I would also say it could help us to feel that, first of all, it's not just, let's say, Ukrainian in ethnic or or whatever sense. It's much broader. So it is directly linked to the people and processes that we already know, like this example I mentioned, the Zionism. So again, if you need to understand properly the, uh, uh, let's say, the, the the, the starting points, yeah, the development of Zionist movement, you should go to Dnipro <laughs> and have a closing look and, and not just look on Herzl and uh, Vienna and stuff like that, right? And and, and again, and so, so on, in many other cases as well. Um, and at the same time, I think that any history, also the history of this place, maybe not teaches, but somehow suggests, suggests us that we historians or we people who are striving to understand what's going on, uh, we could not know the future. I mean, we could, of course, like speculate about it or <laughs> make some predictions, but we don't know it. And uh, I also tried to give some quotes from different sources, how different like clever people from the past, how they tried to grasp the future which is coming. For instance, some would say, ah, uh, there is no hope for economic development of this place because of the nature, yeah, because of the Dnipro River and the rapids and how it's all done, yeah. 
some other like architect would say right before the Second World War, like that he has a great plan for <laughs> for rethinking of the entire like city center and whatever. And it was like this article was published like literally like a couple of months before the yeah the attack of uh, the Nazi Germany Union and so so on. Um, I think we should be cautious really in. Uh, our attempts to predict uh, like what could happen or what could we learn from it. But at the same time, and that amazes me uh, indeed, at the same time, one could still uh, see kind of continuation of some like lines that are going through the centuries, like the one about the migrants that we just said, or for instance, some even metaphors used to define this city, like the metaphor of, you know, like a place uh, being groundless or having not enough foundation. It could be found in different literary texts from the 18th century up to nowadays. And even though like the context is completely different, there is still this feeling that, you know, that it, it's it's like it's step, yeah, it's south, it's all like moving fast and like who knows where it brings us. So, I think that uh, it's normal and it's very much okay that uh, Dnipro, as well as uh, the entire Ukraine, Ukrainian people, uh, tries to yeah, somehow redefine itself uh, also nowadays. Uh, tries to, th- that's certainly so, tries to rethink its imperial and Soviet past. Because again, you see, this particular city played enormous role in Russian imperial project for Catherine II, but also later on uh, for Nicholas II, who visited the city as well. <laughs> so you have the entire, like, this modern Russian empire there from beginning yeah, till the end. Uh, and for the Soviet Union, of course. Yeah, because, as you already mentioned, Brezhnev, but also before that. Uh, and now, of course, uh, the war that came to Ukraine from Russia, yeah, uh, this war, ideologically, is very much based on different types of, let's say, mythologies, yeah, from the Russian Empire and from the Soviet Union. And now imagine, like, you live in a place where, uh, let's say, a huge part of its history, yeah, a lot of objects, buildings, yeah, right, uh, they actually bear this uh, presence and importance of both, like, imperial and Soviet narratives, and you want uh, to prove to yourself and probably to the world that it's not who we are. It may be, it's maybe part of our uh, past, but it's not like our, let's say, present-day identity, yeah, even if Putin believes so, <laughs> right? So that's not an easy situation, seriously. That's not an easy situation. And I think that people who live there, not just politicians, also like, you know, just normal people, they're trying to find ways uh, how to do that. I could tell you that in my own view, I'm very cautious here again, because of course I'm not living there at the moment, but still as a historian I would say that we should not be afraid of the past, I mean imperial past or Soviet, because it happened you could not pretend it was not there you could not pretend Brezhnev was not uh, the first secretary of the local um, yeah, branch of the communist party, or that it was not the center of rocket industry, rocket missile industry of the Soviet Union or that Catherine II visited the place. And also, we have this correspondence yeah, between the empress and Potemkin and stuff like that. I think that uh, nowadays Ukraine should not be afraid of it. It should just somehow clearly formulate or say that 
what happened in the past does not imply then that's the social reality we have nowadays. And if we are kind of like logical, pragmatic, uh, educated people, it's not an, it's, it, 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 it's, it's easy to understand that. It's the same, you know, as it was in many, many other parts of Europe. Of course, of course. And uh, then uh, this political danger somehow disappears, at least in my belief, and we should just uh, proceed with a serious research and serious conversation about it. And uh, in, in, like, in order to make this uh, conversation not just responsive, but also interesting, in my view, it should be complex. So it should not be limited to just one aspect of it. It should include, as I've tried in my book, it should include like all those sometimes confronting yeah, paths and visions, but it does not mean that this, uh, let's say, Soviet past or imperial past, yeah, somehow denies or makes impossible for Ukraine to become a successful European state nowadays. Nowadays, in my view, on the contrary, it's actually about this responsible and critical attitude uh, to what happened, to what have happened to our ancestors. And we'll see. I am like I am observing myself. What's going on there? It's too early to conclude, seriously, in my view, it's too early to conclude because every war, and it's such a, such a full-scale war, for sure, it, um, yeah, it brings a lot of dynamics into political and social debates. And that's normal. It's nothing like... It, it's understandable, yeah. But uh, still, keeping all that in mind, uh, we as historians, we could not know the future. So the future is open. The future is always open. It's like, you know, it depends on our actions, yeah, on our decisions, on our uh, thoughts also, like decisions made every day, every second. And you could not just say it will be this or that. Mm-mm, no, it's always open. So actually, I will be very happy if somehow in, in parts of this book, I've managed to give this feeling of openness openness of historical development because that's what we're dealing with mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's I, it's a beautiful way to end um, and as a historian I, I couldn't agree more we can't be afraid of the history um, it is complex and we need to understand it and write those complexities uh, and you know it's a notorious line in the you know historical profession that historians are terrible predictors of the future um, you know there's there's a great lyric in a, a song from a uh, one of my friend's bands from a small town, Loveland, Colorado, called Shooting Down Satellites. They're they're no longer together, but they had a line in one of their songs called "The future is unwritten, authors wanted." Right, um, and so I think that's where we have to leave it. But um, Andre, I want to thank you so much for doing this podcast interview. For those of you listening, we were talking today about Andre's new book. It's called "The Nipro: An Entangled History of a European City." Please pick it up and read it and engage with these paths. Andri, thank you so much. Thank you so much again. Дякую дуже.